0: Of Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod and this is episode number 13 with designer Pete Thomas. Pete's done a number of things over the years from working in consultancies and building up agencies to working in education including some time at DJCAD and over the past few years with his wife Kirsty he's been building up creative studio Tom Pigeon which has gone from strength to strength and they produce some beautiful pieces from prints to stationery, metalwork and jewellery amongst a whole bunch of other things. Um, If you're not familiar with their work, I'd encourage you to check out TomPigeon.com because their stuff really is beautiful and their uh, ethos of affordable and accessible, high-quality design it really does ring true, and as they say, they create design that they want to live with, and yeah, I can definitely get on board with that, so much so I embarrassingly I'd Pete round for a coffee and a chat to record it in the flat, and I looked like an absolute fanboy when he comes into the living room and there's four of his prints sitting on the wall, and i completely forgotten all about that, <laughs> which, um, yeah, didn't go unnoticed and slightly embarrassing. But yeah, um, before we jump into the podcast, there's one other little thing I'd like to address. A couple of comments that have come in from some listeners around about the intros and the outros for the podcast. Um, It's been suggested that I've taken a sort of fast show style jazz club approach to the intros and outros, which if you don't get that reference, then there's a, a link in the show notes and somewhat a sort of sultry or semi-seductive tone, Um, but I can assure you this is uh, purely circumstantial. Uh, I end up recording them quite late at night as I'm putting the episodes together in a quiet corner of my flat, so, yeah, it may well come across slightly more like that, but I can assure you that it's it's definitely not intentional, but um, thanks for the comments anyway. If you do have, have anything you want to say as well, you can reach out and just drop a little tweet at cccdundee and, yeah, let us know if you enjoy the episodes or you've got any questions or anything like that. But, yeah, I'll stop rambling on and we can get into episode 13 with Pete Thomas.
1: Well, I did... Um, I kind of always knew that I was interested in design. So I was one of those kind of lucky people who had a sense of kind of purpose, certainly towards art and design. But I mean, at a very young age, I kind of said that I was going to be a designer and then kind of later on thought I might be an artist. And then I did a foundation course and um, was kind of told that I wasn't going to be an artist and, and ushered into the, the kind of done section, which was design on the foundation course that I was on. And so that kind of put me off academic life for a while. And so I, yeah, I left and went to work in a shop and then decided that I would set up a business. Um, and so I set up a shop. Uh, it's like the height of club culture in Liverpool at the time. And so I set up a shop all to do with like clubbing and things like that. And um, I kind of ran that into the ground within about nine months through not having any kind of financial skills. Um, and so I kind of went back into working for shops. Um, in in the retail sector, and was kind of edging towards um, management. Management kept getting talked about, and uh, it sort of scared me a little bit. And so I kind of applied through clearing um, very late in the day for a a design course in Liverpool, which happened to be a product design course, which is what I'd kind of been steered towards uh, on my foundation course. And did, yeah, did a three-year foundation course in Liverpool. Sorry, a three-year product design course in Liverpool. And I was just lucky that on that course, I met a couple of people who were very like-minded. So a guy in the year above us and a guy in my year. Um, And we just decided that we should be a company, you know, that we wanted to make things together. Um, At the time we wanted to make lights and other products like that. And we were into kind of, I guess there was an emerging culture of design that was happening at the time, like a kind of slightly different kind of design. So you still have magazines like The Face and ID, but you're also seeing like, it was when Wallpaper first started um, and there's starting to be more of an interest in, in visual culture and and we felt that we like there was a gap for that in liverpool and that we could basically be a design company in the northwest and not have to move to london and yeah it's a series of like a series of happy accidents i guess a lot of i think a lot when you look back over your career it's quite easy to see how much of it is just down to luck And circumstance, and I was lucky that I found these people who were both like-minded and also had very different skills to the ones that I had. Mm -hmm. So one of the guys was really interested in business and was very good at um, financial management and accounts. The other guy was really good at seeing projects through to the end, um, whereas I'm quite good at the front end of projects. Um, And so collectively, it all worked very well. And then we had the good fortune to meet um, an existing graphic design company, who took us under their wing, gave us free desk space for a year, connected us to all their clients. Um, so it kind of extended their services. They set up a business with us, basically, and that started us off. And then, yeah, very quickly, we kind of realised it's it was relatively easy to achieve the things that we'd wanted to do. Which was what? Uh, it was really just fame at the time, I think <laughs> it was the only the only thing that was kind of driving us was uh we you know we wanted to make great stuff, but the kind of the measures by which we would know whether or not we'd achieved it was whether or not we were in certain magazines and um you know at certain shows and things like that, and all those things happened very quickly, and yeah, we kind of you know just grew, and there was you know. I think the the nature of of me and also, I had quite a young family. So uh, we basically, we set the company up in my second year of university. By that point, I already had like a one-year-old son and I was married. so I wasn't like a typical student. And so because of various pressures like that, I kind of weaved in and out of like doing that business stuff full time and doing other things. And that kind of gave me quite a broad perspective of the industry. So I started doing some lecturing and things like that. And around uh, 2002, I started kind of doing lecturing in different universities, while still being involved with the business. And then kind of did that up until um, around 2007 when I moved up here. And that was very much to kind of just get a break from living in the city a break from the pressures of kind of running a design studio and, and so I kind of went down to just working a day a week remotely for them and lecturing again in DJCAD. And then that gradually built up <laughs> because that, that, that kind of space that I'd created by moving up here sort of changed the way that I thought about things and gave me space to think about things and that started to become quite valuable for the business um, I started to see a different way of designing things, met some different people. and started to filter all that back into the business. And over time, I basically ended up having these kind of two quite needy part-time jobs. And so I ended up full-time again for the guys down in Liverpool, but with me living up here and kind of commuting backwards and forwards to Liverpool and London. Um, yeah, and that just got to a point where it was... It was too successful. Basically, it was all going very well, and I was going to need to start running like a bigger team. And I just felt I couldn't really do it and live here. Mm. So at that point, I saw an opportunity to um, work with Kirsty, my wife, who'd um, independently been practicing as a designer for a few years, and we saw this opportunity to create a kind of a studio that would give us. The chance to kind of work on the kind of projects that we wanted. Again, just a slightly simpler take on design, really, less consultancy work. Really, just kind of making the sort of things that we wanted to live with, in the way that we wanted to make them, and and that's how we get to Tom Pigeon. And so, obviously, with Tom Pigeon,
0: that's been going how long? Uh, two about two and a half years now. As you say, it's. You're creating things that you would want to live with. What else is it that affects that aesthetic? Because every time you you look at something it's it's recognisably Tom Pidgeon, I think anyway, in a lot of the work. Where does that aesthetic actually come from?
1: Yeah, we we, we kind of struggle to pin it down between ourselves, to be honest. I I think we have very similar values um, in terms of quality and attention to detail and things like that. In terms of the overall aesthetic, I think what we're trying to do is to achieve a kind of a simplicity in, in what we do, but also a degree of kind of utility. So it's, it's, a, it's quite a struggle because we're, we're kind of very much driven by the idea of making things that are essentially affordable. So things that don't become too expensive. I think there's a real challenge to the the craft and the maker industry as to how you engage people with less money it's quite easy to make things that are really beautiful and that cost lots of money it's much more difficult to make things that are really beautiful and cost less money but are still made in a in a way that values kind of ethics and values the people making them. Mm-hmm. And so that that middle ground for designer makers is a really difficult one to do. And, and we try and go down that route and that tends to inform the way that things look. You know, on, on a visual kind of aesthetics point of view, we, we just strip things back all the time. So we start with ideas that are maybe... Well, I, I start with ideas and Kirsty tends to start with a kind of a more visual approach. And then it just gets simplified back and back and back until it's as, as few things as possible that still deliver whatever it was we wanted to do in the first place. So I guess it's a, it's a reductive process that leads to something that feels right. And I think there's a, you know, there's some sort of unspoken reflection of kind of like Japanese Aesthetics, things like um, wabi sabi, that that idea of materiality and, and kind of like uh, you know making the most of process and making the most of materials and that being evident in the work. So it's, a lot of the work tends to reflect the the materials that it's made from. And you've you've built
0: this up in a, a little Scottish coastal town. I'm interested to to find out how that location has affected things like keeping that cost down and finding people to work with, to collaborate with, to source materials from that. I mean, because, yeah, if they're, if they're not local, then the cost is obviously going to be more. And how do you manage that that side of it?
1: Uh, I think there's, a, there's always a cost opportunity when you work. I mean, basically, if you work anywhere outside of London and the south, there's a there's a kind of cost advantage to designing, making, um, so we have you know a kind of luxury of space in our studio. Um, it's much more difficult to find the right people to work with because you draw them from a smaller pool of people anyway. Um, so you know if you think population of the whole of Scotland five million, population of London's around ten. Um, so it, it's, it's much more difficult in terms of finding the right people. Um, and it's obviously quite difficult in terms of incentivizing people to, you know, potentially move and things like that. Although where we live is a place that people are kind of driven to kind of move to as well. So there's that, I, th- I think that there there are no major challenges in terms of finding, um, manufacturers or, materials or things like that. There's actually an awful lot of that on the doorstep in, in Scotland. Um, there's still quite a lot of industry out there. And there's um, Makeworks have done a great job of providing a resource to some of that. Um, and it's kind of, a, you know, it's untapped and out there for people to, to use. So that side of things isn't too difficult. But we don't limit ourselves geographically to just working with people in Scotland. Anyway, we'll, we, you know, we tend to work with people in Britain, but even then, we're not we're not particularly limited by geography. I think for us, it's more about finding uh, just the right people to work with, so people that share similar values or have particular expertise. And it doesn't really matter where they are in the in the world if they're the right people. Um, they're the people that we want to work with. Hmm. And how do you decide what what medium and what the outputs are going to be? I would say it's necessity and. Um, uh, organic evolution rather than strategy. So we just do um we do a kind of weird mixture of things um and it's kind of because it's what what felt right and because there was already kind of continuity there. So when Kirst had started out um with her own practice, she'd started making jewelry pieces and then she moved gradually into print. My background's all over the place, trained as a product designer Probably see myself more as a graphic designer. Done loads of consultancy service design kind of stuff. Occasional bits of digital. <laughs> so I think, you know, both of us love two dimensional work. We both like prints and, and the visual arts. But the, the kind of overall spectrum of what we do is, is kind of broader than that. And I think, you know, from a commercial point of view, that breadth is really good because it allows, um, the, the, there's more stuff to appeal to different people and there's more ways for the brand to kind of express itself, I guess.
0: And do you see that expanding as well, the, the kind of areas that you're working in and producing?
1: Yeah, but probably not in the same, no, no, yeah, <laughs> it'll, it'll always vary because I think we basically do the things that we fancy doing. You know, it's not particularly strategically driven in that way it's it's driven more like a kind of an ongoing art project and so once we get the urge to try something then we'll we'll do it um, and see see where that takes us to which is kind of difficult for the the stockists and things like that but i I think i suspect that the the way that we're going is that there will be more what you might call art projects, which will be slightly removed from the commercial projects, but they'll kind of inform the more commercial side of the business. So is there a lot of sort of play in the process? Yeah, but not as much as we'd like, I think, which is why we're kind of trying to shift it more towards uh, the opportunity to kind of be more experimental and then to allow that to inform the rest of the work. One of the
0: things that's come up a lot is the the, the concept of quality in in your work and, and everything that, that people do. How do you sustain quality across everything that you do? And and how what do you measure yourself against to ensure that, that you're up there with the with the best?
1: I mean quality is obviously like a it's a variable rather than a, a constant. So everyone's got their own measure of it. And I think it's about being clear. So obviously between Kirsty and I, we, we have a very clear idea of what the quality threshold is. And what's important as you grow a team is that that is then clear to everyone else as well. And so there's always a process of, you know, when you're, when you're making items, there's always a process of having to check and do a kind of quality assurance kind of exercise I guess where you're checking pieces so in the case of the jewellery you know it's checked through a series of different stages of production and then it's always checked by Kirsty before it goes out the door now as it is at the moment the the team of people that we've got working on the jewellery know it all inside out and they produce jewellery that's better quality than it ever was when we were doing it ourselves but it still goes through that process and they're actively interested in, in it being double checked and everyone is aspiring to it, to being, you know, as good as it can be. Mm-hmm. I kind of stop short of saying perfect because you have to recognize that it's never going to be perfect. And there are time constraints in terms of what you've got to work to commercially. And there's constraints on the materials that you use and the processes that you use. So it's always a balance between those things. But, you know, ultimately, we want to make something that we're proud of. And I think that just needs to be very consistent across the whole team. And the same goes. You know, we work with printers um, in lots of different places across the UK. So a lot of our screen printing is done over in Glasgow, and then let press down in London. And with those guys, there's a lot of there's a lot of trust. You know, in a way, it's, it's very much a partnership when we're printing with these people because they know their their craft inside and out, and their attention to detail and their attention to quality is such that we can be fairly hands off because we've already selected the right people to work with. Obviously to get to that point, you often have to work with a load of people that weren't the right people. And so it's kind of easy looking at it now and that the process feels kind of quite smooth. But to get to this process, particularly in terms of the prints that are kind of foiled and screen printed, you know, there was a lot of trial and error and there was working with a lot of different companies before we found the team of people that can do that because it's, you know, it's different people do different parts of that process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we've now got it to a point where it works relatively smoothly.
0: And the qualities that you look for in those those partners, are they purely process-driven or is there a, a personality factor in there as well?
1: Oh, yeah, well, I, th- I, think, um, I think you get a good sense of people from personality anyway. So I, I, I've not got a lot of interest in working with, people that aren't nice to work with anyway. I mean, there is a luxury. There's so much choice. Don't really need to work with people unless they're the kind of people you want to work with. So yeah, personality definitely comes into it. But no, I just... There are people you know when you speak to them about how enthusiastic they are about their work and how interested they are in details. And I generally like working with people who are more perfectionist than I am. (laughs) So... People that can point out things that I would have let slip, then you kind of know you're onto a good thing.
0: One of the things that I think is really important um, and that can be very difficult is confidence in yourself and in your work. And I think it's something that you you obviously have and embody. And it seemed to be over a, a sort of long period of time do you think you always had that confidence or do you think you built it up slowly?
1: Well, I, yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I, and I think about this quite a lot. I, th- I think there's a real distinction between having a clear sense of self and being confident. And so I, I certainly for the majority of my professional career, I've not been very confident at all but i've got a very i've always had a very clear sense of self and that sense of self i guess extends to having a clarity of purpose around what you want to achieve as a in this context what you want to achieve as a designer what's important to you and those two things can be completely separate i think what's what's really important is that you have the kind of the, the clarity of what what you're doing and why you're doing it, and whether they call that um, values or ethics or whatever that is, that you have this idea of who you are and, and what you're trying to achieve. Um, and if you've got that, you can kind of walk into any situation and present yourself. And that's completely different to being confident about walking into that situation. The, these days, I'm kind of, I am fairly confident about things because just because I've done enough different things to kind of and you know, enough things have gone wrong and gone you know, projects that have gone wrong, projects that have gone right, that you kind of you see a slightly bigger picture so it's easier to be more relaxed about it. Hmm. Um but I think the important thing is it's not so much having confidence. Because I think in a way that for for some people that only comes up over time. Um I think the important thing is to have uh, a clarity of of purpose and I guess you know if you're not confident then what you do need to be is relaxed yeah. you need to learn not to to stress
0: yeah I think for me confidence goes up and down uh-huh. um, and it can take it can be one email or one phone call that drops you right down but then it can be one email or phone call that just picks you right back up again and it's this constant roller coaster of thing and I think that Being able to keep yourself relaxing on a level with that, to have reassurance in your ability and those values and, and as you say, your your goals and what you want to achieve can can really help with that and it's something I've struggled with a lot in the last couple of years and I'm only now starting to understand that if work disappears for a month, it's not the end of the world, things will come back, you just need to start working again at it. But it's really difficult, and I know there's there's a lot of people in similar situations who have that same struggle, especially working it on your own for yourself
1: yeah I, don't, I think there's there's lots of different things kind of wrapped up in what we're talking about at the moment if you, if you take it from a well you, I, I guess fundamental to all of it is you know there's there's a kind of like maslow's hi, a hierarchy thing like pyramid of needs and you know if you're struggling in terms of like cash flow or you're not getting clients in or you're not selling work or whatever it is that you need to do to kind of make money then it's really difficult to be relaxed about the actual work itself so you know you almost need that basic level to be met in order for you to relax about the work because if you're if you're struggling with paying bills then it's always going to be difficult to be relaxed about the work if if you know that money is okay and the job's not going perfectly, you're less stressed about it. If money is an issue, the job needs to be going perfectly because you need to get paid or you need to get the thing out or you need it to be sold. So there's all these different factors that come into play. And and that's why I think, depending on how you work as a designer, very much dictates the kind of, I guess, the levels of stress and the potential anxiety that you feel in relation to what you're doing. Um, So if you're working for somebody within a consultancy. In a lot of ways, you you kind of reduce the the potential for stress. If you own the consultancy, you create quite a lot of uh, stress. And if you work for yourself, I think you, you create the potential for quite a lot of stress because you're having to deal with those other factors in terms of just kind of getting the bills in. Mm-hmm. And, and those fundamentals have kind of You know, are my financial needs getting met? Are the project needs getting met? Are always to the fore above kind of, uh, you know, before um, the kind of creative factors in a way. Mm -hmm. But we tend to obsess over the creative factors um, and those other things just kind of bubble under underneath.
0: Yeah, and I think that money's always the big issue. Um, and I think there is there's a there's a level at which you're then happy and secure and it's funny I'd, I've been speaking to obviously with the podcast a lot of different people and that often the approach is if, if they have a creative career they have a partner who has a secure job that is there in case and that's your that's your safety net um, and that can give a lot of a lot of reassurance and the ability to then focus on your creative practice and, and move that out of your mind which is is really helpful and sort of liberating in a way, if you like.
1: Now, Kirsten and I spent years um, alternating between which one of us was the sensible one and which one of us was the crazy one in terms of doing different things and focusing on just kind of starting up businesses and people taking time out from earning salaries and things like that. You know, that that that's kind of happened a few times in my career with each of us having that chance to be the person that didn't earn some money for a bit. I want to
0: move on to the idea of success mm-hmm. and how, how you quantify that. And I think in the same way that you said, quality is a variable. Um, it's very much different for, for everyone. And that's why I, I've started to ask everyone this question. and How, how do you define success? Um...
1: <laughs> I think it's a really, really difficult question. I mean, success for me still comes down to th- those basics that we were talking about. So it's still for me about being financially stable. Yeah, know, that's kind of, that's what my sensible head on. Um, that's still a fundamental part of it. So one of the things that I think that Kirsten and I have done quite successfully is, you know, We've, we've built a business that manages to support both of us and we're reasonably happy with that, the, the level. Um, but, yeah, I'm still not holidaying in Barbados, uh, which would be quite nice. So there's, there's kind of different levels, but I think there's a kind of financial security um, is important to me, but wouldn't be to other people. I think creatively, just kind of being able to sleep at night creatively is important um, and I feel very happy with that at the moment. There's always compromises, you know, on all projects, whether they're consultancy projects or whether they're projects for yourself. And it's maybe one of the hard things to understand about being financially successful with your own practice, you know, as a designer maker, is that there's still compromises but they're almost self-imposed by you, which is, you know, so there's nobody to moan at other than yourself. But I think, you know, being being kind of relaxed with your creative output, I think, or, you know, more than relaxed, happy is nice. That's kind of success. Yeah, I think probably those, those two things, um, that kind of combination of financial security, being content with, uh, or, or, you know, happy with the quality, it's not even quality, I guess the integrity, being happy with the integrity of the creative output. And for me personally, you know, like not, not stressing about stuff is always a positive as well.
0: Hmm. I want to move on to talk about, a bit more about geography. You guys have consciously chosen that, that corner of Fife to work in.
1: Why was that? Uh, no good reason whatsoever. It was just, we wanted to move out of the city, we wanted to move back up to Scotland because Kirsty's from Scotland and we liked the music, there was good scene there. When we moved up the fence label was going from kind of strength to strength and there, was, there seemed to be enough activity there that it looked like you could kind of live in a village but there would be a bit of a a bit of a buzz and a bit of kind of stuff happening and people travelling to it. And then we kind of visited it a few times and there was a quite peculiar quality of light, which was really nice. And I think there's something about living on the coast which attracts unusual people and you have a slightly different outlook, I think, on life when you live beside the sea because it becomes like a touchstone You know, you kind of, you see it every day and I I kind of think that 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 horizon line that you see, it sounds very stupid, but I think the horizon line that you see is kind of one of opportunity. So when you look out to to this big expanse of like sea and sky, uh, there's a a sense of like anything being possible. Um, And so yeah, those were the weird reasons we moved up there and the music's still good. And there are loads of like odd, interesting people that live there. It's like a kind of a magnet for clever, interesting people. And not too
0: far away, obviously, Dundee's going through a massive amount of, of change at the moment. There is a big spotlight being put on the city and everything that's happening and changing. But I, I wanted to get your opinion on that that change and what you would like to see happen in the city.
1: Well, I, I mean, it's hard for me to say that, really. I think the way that a cultural and creative sector works within a city is really tied into things that go beyond the city itself. So I think the, the challenge that faces Dundee is how it creates or how it continues to have this kind of healthy rise in the creative and cultural industries, but specifically you know the, the challenge is that the the population around it is relatively small. So if you look at um, you know, where Dundee is at now reminds me quite a lot of where Liverpool was you know a few years ago in terms of what it's undergoing and you know in the in the mid 80s the Tate opened an offshoot gallery in Liverpool, not in a not dissimilar way to the way that the VNA has been built in Dundee and there's a whole kind of sense of regeneration and, and Liverpool's capital of culture and things like that it's a lot of parallels and you're talking about cities that have suffered greatly through a loss in manufacturing and uh, loss of industry and, and kind of making a shift towards cultural tourism creative industries science and technology things like that where I think it's it, there's a challenge for Dundee is that there's a lack of infrastructure immediately around it in terms of businesses and other towns that can support those industries and so in that sense that the the challenge for making it work is is connectivity is ensuring that the people who are working in dundee can work with and for people in other areas whether that's the highlands Edinburgh, Glasgow, London, or the world, mm. but you know specifically in terms of design consultancy, I think the challenge is the the clients. In terms of designer makers, there's, there's no significant challenges to being in Dundee. One of the, the challenges as a city is talent retention and
0: attracting that talent in that the university produces world-class graduates that have gone to work from amazing businesses across the world, often without looking back. I'm not sure whether the best thing to do is to try and keep them in the city or to let them go and then attract them back in a couple of years' time. We are now a city of design that doesn't necessarily keep its designers once it creates them. And it's a sort of an export. So I know you probably have first-hand experience of this from, from lecturing at DJCAD. What's your thoughts on, on whether or how we should be keeping people or if we should be doing that at all and, and, or should be letting them go?
1: I think it's really healthy for people to go, particularly because the intake in Scottish universities is very Scottish-focused. Um, so you kind of, you create these slightly weird monocultures of, you know, Scottish universities for Scottish people, which isn't great. And, you know, it's brilliant that it's free education, but the, the, the downside of that is that it's very limited in terms of exposure to different cultures, different kinds of people, different places, different experiences. So getting out of not just Dundee but out of Scotland and seeing other things for a bit is fantastic, particularly as a designer, because you get a breadth of vision. I think a lot of people who leave Scotland have an urge to come back to it because Scotland has a unique set of characteristics that make it an amazing place to live and the quality of life up here is much better I think than the quality of life in London but the opportunities and the experiences that you can get there are very different so I think it's it's good for people to go equally it would be nice for more people to have that same mentality that we had when we started up in Liverpool, which is like, I don't need to go there. I'm going to make it happen here. And you can see that there are people doing that at the moment. The the challenge, like I was saying, is is connecting the clients to those industries um, and and those designers. So at the moment, the kind of design industry in Dundee is, is probably serviced quite well by Clients in engineering and aerospace and oil, and then some of the ad work will come through from Edinburgh and Glasgow. But there's there's less of an immediate geographical requirement for for kind of design consultancy services. Mm. And so, so in terms of retention, you know, there's a kind of capacity at the moment for the number of designers that can work here. And what, what being seen as a city of design will do, hopefully, is kind of put that spotlight on it and, and kind of encourage that sort of connectivity to the city and our kind of businesses that are further away from it. But it's, it's where you start to realise that like, just like obvious things like t- transport infrastructure is really critical. So being able to get in and out of the city quickly and being able to connect through to like Glasgow and Edinburgh and further afield quickly is critical to you being able to run a design business out of Dundee. You know, if it takes you uh, a long time to fly to London, say, so, or to get a train to London, it's going to be really difficult doing business there. The way I see it is like it is really about an infrastructure issue mm. and it's, it's challenging. But I mean I don't I shouldn't get too caught up in it because I've not tried to do I've not tried to be a consultancy in Dundee. And I know there's good, big, successful consultancies here. And I don't specifically know what their client base is. Mm-hmm. But I think I think it'd be quite hard for us to have done what we've done with Uniform and Liverpool up here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think as much as there is a spotlight on everything at the moment and design in particular things are still very fragile and the the creative community itself is isn't gigantic it's 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 a good size and it is it's yeah it's got a lot of really engaged people doing great things but it it still needs more it still needs to grow and it needs to get that that confidence um to grow over time i think it's not just going to happen you can't just give a city a title and expect it to flourish it doesn't really work like that
1: yes the opportunity for um design and designers and dundee is to work out where as a city where where the design fits i'm thinking again about like the relationship between say liverpool and manchester when we started up uniform so manchester traditionally had a lot more consultancies um but it was much more focused towards kind of design marketing advertising um end of the spectrum um which enabled Liverpool to carve out something that was a little bit different, and whether that was a focus more on kind of creative arts, something that was slightly edgier, maybe, um, and also a, like a push towards digital. So I think I think the opportunity for Dundee is to kind of recognise that it's it's kind of like this slight outpost, and that with that comes an opportunity to be slightly different and potentially less outwardly commercial but for that to create an opportunity for um, commercial practice, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think there's an opportunity for people to push things more here and to do things that are more different and to kind of attract people to the city because what's being done here is different. What
0: excites you at the moment?
1: <laughs> well, r- right now what I'm... I'm There's a couple of things that excite me. I'm working with an ex-student at the moment um, and supporting them with their own business practice. And that's kind of interesting to be able to kind of pass on some of the stuff that I've learned. And also exciting to see, you know, DJK graduates doing some amazing things. So there's a whole load of ex-students who are kind of reaching a point in their careers where they're starting to do some really interesting Things, some really interesting work, some really interesting people. So that's really exciting to see because as a lecturer, you sometimes, you know, there's a disconnect between when the students go, but it's really great to see where they the, where they're at a few years down the line. And and there's a whole kind of generation of people that I've taught doing really interesting things now. So I'm kind of excited by that. I'm excited at the moment about the. Just what the role of design is, I guess, and what the purpose of design is. I think we're kind of living through interesting times. I think we've maybe taken quite a lot for granted that unless we are a bit more purposeful in in our own practice, we may not have the same luxuries that we've become accustomed to. When I say luxuries, I mean civil liberties. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I kind of guess I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested in how political design work should be. And I haven't got any clear answers to it, but my sense is that we have a bit of a debt to society, that the, the work maybe needs to be more political.
0: So if anyone wants to find out a bit, a bit more about what you do, uh, where would they go and do that?
1: Uh, they can have a look at the website, which is TomPigeon.com. They can follow Tom Pigeon on various social media. Yeah, or they can follow me on Twitter, on Pete Pigeon. Okay,
0: great. Thanks very much. And that was episode 13, Done and Dusted. Thank you to Pete for taking the time out to do that. And if you do want to go and check out uh, some of the Tom Pigeon work, you can do that at tompigeon.com. Um, you can also follow them at Tom Pidgeon. And yeah, I do encourage you to yeah, go and have a look, because uh, their stuff is genuinely really beautiful. Um, and again, if you did enjoy the episode, please send a little tweet or um, a like on Instagram. It would be great. And that's at CCC Dundee. So until next week, goodbye.